This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wye. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously on Bonaparte. Putting together a chronology or timeline is just a basic exercise to understand a set of facts. It's one thing to read through a stack of documents. It's another thing to try to organize the information in those documents. The first thing I saw was Samson's naked bottom with a wet diaper about a foot away. In the early evening hours, there was a party of the family that Laura had a child in common with and uh, in Bonaparte in our county. Four hours later, five hours later, she's dead. Keep going. Is this Henrietta right here? It's, yes. it's oh, this might be it. After Annie and I met up with John Zane, a retired sheriff's deputy who'd never stopped thinking about Laura's case, we headed to Missouri, where we were hoping to find Tony Bergman, one of the last people to see Laura alive. We found him all right. So we drove up, we drove by the house, and uh, Tony's outside in a black sweatshirt and uh, blue-tinted glasses, and he's sitting on a John Deere mower. Still talking. Now he's mad. From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers. This is Bonaparte. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Okay, in the movies, trials are full of suspense, surprise witnesses, and unexpected testimony. But the truth is, lawyers hate surprises. It's a basic principle of lawyering. You never ask a witness a question you don't know the answer to. This isn't just true in trials. The same principle applies in an investigation. Cops love to play dumb, casually asking about events as if they're hearing about them for the first time when in fact, they've been scrutinizing every detail for weeks. Keeping an open mind doesn't mean having an empty mind. Of course, sometimes questions are all you have, because only the witness in front of you can tell you what you need to know. And when you're in that situation, it helps to know as much as possible before you start digging for information. All of which is to say, before talking to a critical witness like Tony Bergman, preparation is essential. 
Annie and her team at Gibson Dunn often spend dozens of hours reviewing relevant files and preparing questions for a deposition expected to last just a few hours. For trial testimony, their preparation time could stretch to hundreds of hours. Like so much in Annie's life, it begins with the file. Annie and I are in a file room here at Gibson Dunn in New York, uh, which is basically a windowless room uh, full, and when I say full, I mean there's really no room to walk, of rows and rows of metal bookshelves, all stacked with boxes and boxes of documents. Look behind you, Jason. Look at the binder there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Some of these documents relate to the Chevron case that Annie and I worked on. Tony and Sarah's statements to the police are almost all we have to build our timeline from 11 p.m. until Laura's found three hours later. It's a crucial period, and we need to know if we can count on these statements. As we've done countless times before when working on a big case together, Annie and I decide to get together one morning to review the Bergman story, measuring it against all the evidence we have. To recap, Tony and Sarah's basic narrative is this. They were in Bonaparte until about 11.15 p.m., when they drove home to Cahoka with Laura, Samson, and their two kids. They changed drivers along the way because Tony decides he's had too much to drink. At their trailer in Cahoka, Laura, Samson, and the Bergman's daughter, Molly, decide to sleep on the living room floor. The next morning, when Sarah wakes up just before 7, Laura's gone. Back in New York, Annie works through emails on her phone while I assemble the file pulling up documents on my laptop and assembling a stack of notes. She's exasperated, dissatisfied with something sent to her by a colleague. She taps out instructions, moves on to the next email, another case, another urgent matter. After a minute of this, she locks her phone and looks up. I have her attention. So, I mean, first we have this issue of whether or not Laura smoked pot that night. Probably not a super relevant detail to begin with, but people's statements about this are all over the place. There are about 20 reports in the file that relate to the Bergman story in one way or another. I've got them on my laptop for our review, highlighted and cross-referenced by topic. Annie, I suspect, has them more or less memorized. We're going through the elements of the Bergman story that raise questions. While Tony and Sarah both insist that Laura split a joint with Sarah Bergman at the party in Bonaparte that night around 7.45 p.m. Everybody else at the party, at least when they were first interviewed by the police, said that Laura did not smoke or drink at the party and her toxicology screen was negative. So, you know, where is that information coming from? Um, I think there's another key set of inconsistencies around Laura's bags. According to what Donnie and his mother told the police, Laura left both her diaper bag and her purse in Bonaparte that night. This is the basis for Tony and Sarah's theory about why Laura left the trailer in the middle of the night. Samson needed a new diaper, Laura didn't have his diapers with her, and so she left the trailer to go get some. Annie has always been skeptical about that theory. I have a hard time believing that Laura would have gone to the store for diapers, you know, leaving Molly and Sam there by themselves without letting Tony and Sarah know that she's leaving the trailer, right? The other thing, too, of course, is the Bergmans have had a one-year-old baby. Her first resort would have been to get a diaper from them, right? Then, as we dig further into the police file, there are conflicting statements about whether Laura even left her diaper bag in Bonaparte. According to what Sarah's sister told the police, when Tony called in the morning, he told her, quote, all of Laura's bags are gone, end quote. 
If Laura has left her purse and her diaper bag in Bonaparte, what bags is Tony talking about? And in a later interview with the police, Sarah Bergman refers to the diaper bag specifically. She recalls that Laura had her diaper bag in the trailer and that she thought the coat was draped over a chair with the diaper bag on it. If she had a diaper bag with her, the idea that she left the trailer in the middle of the night to go get diapers is just completely, I mean, it completely falls apart. So, the diaper bags. Our first big inconsistency. Did Laura leave her diaper bag in Bonaparte, as Donnie and his mother told the police? Or didn't she? As Tony suggests, and Sarah would later say outright to the police. Then there's this odd detail about the drive from Bonaparte to Cahoka. Both Tony and Sarah mention this in their statements. Tony starts out driving, decides he's too drunk, pulls over, and lets Sarah take the wheel. Does it seem sensible to admit to police officers you've been drunk driving? Is that something you'd say in an interview? But then I have another issue with that, which is why would Laura have gotten into the car with her 14-month-old son, their two daughters, and let the person who's drunk drive? I mean, Laura did not have any alcohol in her system at that time. Why wouldn't she have driven or driven her own car? I mean, she had a car. Yes. There. She was sober. Yes. We know that. Yeah. She would have insisted on driving herself. So that's three ways in which the statements and the other evidence don't fit. Whether Laura smoked pot that night, whether she had her diaper bag with her, and why she might have let someone who'd been drinking drive her and her baby son back to Cahoka. There's also a fourth question that's never really been clear to me. Why does she go to Cahoka at all? And the list goes on. The witness statements in the police file are consistent on two things about Laura's clothing. First, nobody saw her in maroon sweatpants, the sweatpants she was wearing when she was found on the side of the road. Second, her coat. Okay, so everybody is consistent that Laura had a green coat on that night. Sarah Bergman eventually provides this coat to the police and confirms it was in the trailer the night Laura died. And she tells them that it was reportedly in the trailer the entire time. If Laura had her coat with her in Cahoka, why is she wearing Tony's jacket when she's found? And where did she get size 16 maroon sweatpants? Issues with the Bergman story continue into the next morning. Sarah, you'll remember, sets her alarm for 6.30, wakes at 6.50, and comes into the trailer living room just before 7 a.m. Sarah Bergman woke up went into the living room, and Sam and Molly were still asleep. By this point, Laura has been gone from the trailer since at least 1.45 a.m., and probably a good deal sooner, because that's when the truck driver finds her. So if Sarah's statement is accurate, that means one of two things. Either Laura took Samson with her when she left, and then someone returned him to the trailer shortly before 7, or he's been sleeping on the trailer floor for over five hours all without waking anybody. This is a kid who slept with his mom every night of his life, literally every single night of his life. I don't find it unusual that a 14-month-old would sleep through the night. A 14-month-old who's still breastfeeding and co-sleeping, those kids don't sleep through the night. And who's naked on the floor of a strange trailer. Exactly. Another sticking point for Annie and I are the phone calls Tony makes that morning. Bear with me, this can get a bit complicated. Up in Bonaparte, Donnie and his mother both say that Tony calls them just before 7 a.m. They're quite clear about the timing. But Tony says he calls around 7.45, 
after getting back from the convenience store and looking for Laura. Tony and Sarah don't have a phone line in their trailer. They're using Tony's parents' line. So the police subpoena the phone company and obtain a record of long-distance calls made from the Bergman house that morning. The report lists five calls. So the first call is at 7.54. That matches Tony and Sarah's description. This is consistent with Tony and Sarah's statements, but not with Donnie and his mother, who claim the first call came in before 7. The next call is at 8.37. This, too, seems to fit with Tony's statements. He's calling Bonaparte to tell them that Sarah is on her way up there while he looks for Laura. But then there are the three calls at 9 a.m., one to directory assistance, then a short call to Bonaparte, then immediately after that, another call to Bonaparte. It could be Tony calling to tell Donnie that the woman found on the highway is Laura. Except Tony is at the police station at 9 a.m., according to Officer Clements. Now, it's possible Tony went back home to call Bonaparte and then came back to the station to speak with Clements. It's not far, about seven blocks, but it seems like a long way to go just to make a phone call. Also, what doesn't make any sense is why he would use directory assistance. Yes. Tony has already called the Bonaparte house twice without needing directory assistance. Why call them now? Or is it Tony's parents who make this call to directory assistance? Maybe they need to reach the house in Bonaparte and they don't know the number. Or maybe the first few calls aren't Tony at all, but Sarah. Sarah used to live in the Bonaparte house and presumably has the number memorized. To further complicate this call log, Annie points out that these phone records, they might actually be on Eastern time. The phone company was based in Florida. That would put the first call just before 7 a.m., like Donnie and his mother claim. But that throws the rest of the timeline into even more chaos. None of this is a smoking gun, of course, but some of it is very hard to understand. Even on its face, the story we get from the Bergmans raises questions. Why does Laura leave the trailer? Why does she take Tony's jacket? If she left Samson behind, why does she bring his food, clothes, a toy, and his blanket with her? How does Samson sleep through the night naked on the trailer floor without waking the whole trailer? And then there are these other inconsistencies. Laura's bags, the timing of the phone calls, whether Laura smoked pot. Everyone I've spoken with who's looked closely at this file has serious doubts about the timeline of events based on the information offered by the Bergmans. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about Tony and Sarah, what you thought of them, and, and kind of what they were able to tell you? Both of them liars. That was the opinion of Officer Clemens, who spoke repeatedly with Tony and Sarah in the hours and days after Laura's death. You, you felt they were being, not being honest with you from the get-go, like in that meeting yeah. on the morning of the 26th, you, you were suspicious of yeah. them. Both of them, when you would ask questions that were more specific about maybe any involvement that they had with Laura's injuries and her disappearing from their trailer and then not knowing about it, they always di- diverted their eyes. They always looked down. Samson gets left behind in the trailer. So they have Samson, which was highly unusual for me to think that a mother would leave her child in the trailer. It's a good point. Would Laura have done that? So we'll hear a lot more about Laura and Samson and what kind of a mother Laura was in an upcoming episode. But at the risk of a spoiler, I can tell you she was a conscientious, even obsessive mother. One of the many people I've spoken with about Laura and Samson is Laura's own mother, Leanne. 
and you'll hear a lot more from Leanne in upcoming episodes as well. But for now, here's what she had to say about how Laura was with Samson. Laura was a very conscientious mother. She was very concerned about Sam at every turn. And so anytime she went anywhere with him, she had like three or four bags of things. She had homeopathic medicine, diapers, creams, lotions, all his food, you know, extra sweaters. She just had tons of stuff whenever she went anywhere with him. It was just ridiculous. And she'd even be running back to the house like, oh, I just need to get one more thing for Sam. We could hardly get out the door. We could hardly get anywhere that she took so much stuff with her. I asked Leanne, do you think it's possible that Laura left the Bergman's trailer in the middle of the night to get diapers? There's no way that baby was naked on the floor of a trailer. No way. After Tony and Sarah make their initial statements to police, they quickly hire a lawyer and largely refuse to cooperate further. Tony never finishes his final interview with police. He gets up and walks out halfway through when Sarah shows up at the police station. They refuse to take polygraphs. The police have to get a subpoena to search the trailer. I'm hesitant to read too much into this because caution when dealing with law enforcement is something every lawyer recommends. But where do you draw the line between caution and refusing to help find out what happened to your friend, someone who was last seen with you? One of the people I spoke with about this case is a veteran defense lawyer named Ron Kuby. Kuby has represented clients from Hell's Angels to Occupy Wall Street protesters. He's keenly aware of the risks that come with talking to law enforcement, but even he was struck by the Bergman's conduct. The way they clammed up innocent people under these circumstances, you say, gosh, this looks really bad for us. It looks like we're involved. Let's try to clear ourselves as best we can, any way we can. That's not what they did. So where does that leave us? We don't even know they made it to the trailer. She left the house. We only have the Bergmans saying what happened after that, right? Nobody else says what happened after that. In 2020, Tony Bergman reappears on Missouri law enforcement's radar. Clark County Sheriff's Office. Uh, Yeah, I was wondering, this is Anthony Bergman. I need to report my identity theft. Okay, yours? Yeah. I don't know how bad it is yet, but it's bad enough. Okay, let me put you on hold one second, okay? This is April 7th, 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic is in full force. Missouri schools have been closed for weeks, and the day before, the entire state had been ordered into lockdown. This is Tim. Hey, Tim. This is Tim Weiss. Yeah. Hey, this is Tony Burton. What's up? I, uh got my foot into a bunch of shit, and they've stole my identity now. Isolated, Tony's not doing well. He tells the police he's the subject of a conspiracy that Sarah has turned against him. He's distraught, and his statement is hard to make out. Something about a Facebook group that has hacked his phone and his television. But then, unprompted, he turns the conversation to Laura Van Wy. If I wind up dead, <laughs> at least somebody will have some clue. 
See, that's part of the part of the problem is I already called once when I was all upset and tried talking to the state patrol in like nineteen fuck nineteen ninety six. Uh-huh. Uh my brother in law, his girlfriend, and it don't matter, I can't prove nothing. But she was found dead on the highway. Uh-huh. And this is the first time in my life I've ever doubted Sarah's story now. I don't know. I can't prove nothing. But I think might have come down that night because I think he was sleeping with Sarah. And I think Laura got upset and was going to tell me. And that's when whatever happened. It's hard to make out, but he's saying something about someone coming down that night. His opinion, he tells the sheriff's deputy, is that someone was having an affair with Sarah, and Laura was going to tell him about it. He offers no evidence of this, and Sarah would later tell the police that his allegations of infidelity were ridiculous. The sheriff's deputy on this call contacts Missouri Highway Patrol, and several weeks later, they ask Tony to come to the police station for another conversation. I don't want to be confrontational, all right? I didn't drive over here today because I didn't have anything to do on Friday. I'm coming over here because of, I was advised of a phone call when you called in to the sheriff's department and you were talking to Tim. Tony's still paranoid, but he's in better control of himself. The police get tough with him, and there's more than a little macho posturing. I don't know if anybody came down that night. I don't know anything. Okay, and that's, and that's why I want to hear this. I went out of my fucking head there for a while when we were on the fucking quarantine. I can't fucking handle this shit. You're just going to push me over the edge or I'm in the fucking psych ward. Because now I'm worried the fucking cops are going to get after me. Well, if you did something. I'm fucking here shaking and shit. Well, I'm going to tell you if you did something, you're probably right. I didn't do shit. So if you're done, you're done. Does Tony know more than what he told the police? Or is this just the stress of the pandemic or mental illness? Does it sound like a man with a secret? When Laura's mother, Leanne, found out that Tony had been in contact with the police, she reached out to him directly. Hello? Hi, is this Tony? Who? Tony Bergman? Yes, that's me. Oh, hi. Yeah, hi. This is um, Leanne Thomas calling. You may remember me as Laura Van Wy's mother. The recording is hard to make out, but the call goes on for nearly an hour. Leanne doesn't learn anything more. Tony is still emotional, still suffering, but he won't go any further than the vaguest of statements. Maybe someone came down that night. He's adamant that he knows nothing more than what he told the police. Nonetheless, he tells Leanne, suspicion has dogged him for 25 years. I felt like people have ostracized me my whole life, and I don't know what happened. Tony says that when he dies, when he gets to heaven, the first question he's going to ask is what happened to Laura. But what if he already knows? After we saw Tony Bergman out in his front yard, I parked our ginormous black SUV across the street. After months of working on this case, I was looking right at someone who'd seen Laura just hours before she died. And Annie and uh, John have gotten out, and they're having what looks like a 
friendly enough conversation. Lots of shrugs and yeah, you know, kind of, kind of hand motions. Guys talks as much as Tony does. You'd think in 25 years, law enforcement would have gotten him to say something. Assuming that he is not a conspirator to murder, I feel pretty bad for this guy, you know? This has been hanging over him his whole life. Here he is, mowing his lawn, and some lawyer from New York, some retired cop just show up and start pestering him. So he's gone back to his fence. I think he just told John to go fuck himself. Now Annie is fearless. She's standing closer to him than, than Zane. <laughs> That made me nervous, by the way. My legs were shaking. I, that was pretty, that, that was pretty intense, I have to say. I watched Annie and Zane talk to Tony from inside my rented SUV. And though I wasn't close enough to make out what anyone was saying, it clearly went down quicker and more chaotically than we'd expected. Annie and Zane are buzzing with adrenaline. I just basically said, you know, I. John introduced himself and, and me, and I said, you know, I was Laura's friend. I met you at her funeral. Um, you just go into, I gave a statement to the cops. I've done all that. And I said, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a police officer. I'm not here as a police officer. I said, I'm here as Laura's friend, and I want to know what happened to her, you know? And he just wasn't, I don't know, John. I, I would actually be, frankly, scared to be alone with him, I have to say. Like, I think he might have been more responsive, honestly, but you saw how mad he just got. Like, I don't know that he's a safe person to be around. He's extremely fragile. Yep. I mean, you saw how he just flipped out. <laughs> as long as we were buying his story, I don't know nothing, I didn't do nothing. But he can get mad when he, you know, when I told him he was sitting there bawling, didn't really yes. tell the truth. did you see that? No, oh, yeah, he blew up. He knows. He goes from t almost near tears to fury on a dime. Now, if we could, uh, <laughs> this is my law enforcement. Too bad we can't see, see who he's, he's calling, calling right, right now. now. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. We're energized, speculating about what Tony might have done after we left, how many phone calls he's making, to who. Going over it in the car, Annie is focused on how he kept repeating things, like what I was told and she told me. It's almost as if when Tony talks about the events of that night, he's just repeating a story he's been given or that he's distancing himself from what took place. And then, as so often happens, we end up back in a wilderness of speculation, trying to find a path through a thicket of evidence. I've come to think of this conversation about what might have happened and what the evidence might show as speculation bingo. It's a maze with no exit. We aren't going to think our way to a solution. We need new evidence, something more than what's in the file. Have we gained anything on this visit? Tony hasn't told us anything new. In fact, he said less to us than he did to the police and nothing about the possibility that someone came down that night. I did try to convince him if somebody does talk and then it implicates him, he could also be charged. Yeah. And that didn't register. That's, I mean, that's what John was throwing in at the end there, which is what 
set him off and made him so mad? Zane had outlined his interrogation techniques for us back at his house. He comes on strong, putting a witness's potential jeopardy front and center, and that's what he did with Tony. But it didn't work. When Tony comes up against cops doing cop stuff, he gets his back up. We heard it in his earlier interview with the police. When they got tough with him, he shut down. Another investigator recommended a different tactic. The day after our encounter with Tony, Annie and I meet with J.D. Smith, a retired Iowa cop who's worked extensively on cold cases. I've been accused several times of being a farmer when I talk to people because I keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. And, you know, a couple of the guys have said, well, you're just like you're attending crops. You know, you go out and you just keep talking to them. Well, you keep getting information. You probably realize that. The truth is, working in the field rarely works out like you planned. We surprised Tony in his front yard with this ridiculously large SUV rolling up practically on top of him. It was more than just our conversational tactics that let us down. So Annie decides to give Tony some time to cool off and plans to call him when she gets back to New York. Like J.D. Smith says, you got to keep talking to these people, like you're tending crops. Tony and Sarah are critical witnesses, and the inconsistencies in their statements are confusing, but that doesn't mean they're suspects. Shortly after our trip to Cahoka, Annie also heard from Sarah. That did not go well either. When Sarah learned that Annie had been in contact with Tony, she sent a message threatening to sue Annie, accusing her of harassing Tony. Later, when I reached out to Sarah, she refused to speak to me for the very specific reason that I was, quote, affiliated with Ann Champion, end quote. She also complained that all the press coverage about this case is wrong. Now, nobody's obligated to speak to the press, but if you want your side of the story told, it helps to talk to a reporter when they ask for your version of events. To the police, Sarah has always maintained that she's told them everything she knows, that Laura was in the trailer when she went to sleep and gone when she woke up. There's one more question to consider. What if the Bergmans aren't telling the whole truth, but they're holding back information not to protect themselves, but to protect someone else? There's a statistic that looms over this case. Nearly half of female murder victims are killed by a present or former partner. I've always thought that the person that they would all protect from everybody at the party, from Rebecca on down, they would protect Donnie. You can see a thought pattern developing that night of whatever happened, between, if something happened between Donnie and Laura that night, whatever happened here was an accident and we have to protect Donnie because we have to protect Samson. Samson can't lose both of his parents. And I'm not saying that's what happened, I don't know. But it is hard to find any other actor in this situation that everybody would lie for except Donnie. We've scrutinized the evidence we have about Laura's final hours, and the results are inconclusive. Now it's time to broaden our investigation. That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry, 
The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Voice acting by Matt Addis. Special thanks to Thomas Matisik. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.